1: I'm excited to be able to preach from God's Word today, hopefully to excite you, not in just some emotional way, but at some deep level in regard to where you are in your walk with God, at a deep level in the core of who you are, to inspire you and encourage you and motivate you, that you'll have some serious coal in the furnace to be able to take you in your walk with God all throughout this week. Anybody interested in that? Are you interested in that? Turn with me in our Father's Word, Luke chapter 17, as we're going through the entire Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 17 and verse 20. Again, we see the ping-pong action between Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the disciples. We see this again and again repeatedly where Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, those who are dabblers, those who were supposed to be in a much more spiritually mature place than they were, and those who he was taking aside as the disciples, those who were supposed to be the ones who would take on the baton from Jesus after he would go. We see this ping-pong action back and forth, and here we begin with the Pharisees, the volley is made by Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and be given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed On that day, let no one who is on his housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In other words, this is for whomever it applies. See, Jesus begins by having to address the Pharisees who ask this ridiculous question. When will the kingdom of God come? See, in verse 20 and 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or look there, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, if we look at Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the power of God, then the finger of God, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. So why are the Pharisees asking this question? When will the kingdom of God come? You see, Jesus is referring to a two-part episode In regard to his ministry, the first part was in their day. The kingdom of God being in the midst of them. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he is first discussing this with the Pharisees. Because they ask a question. When will the kingdom of God come? And then Jesus turns his attention to the disciples, not the dabblers or the Pharisees, to the disciples when he begins to unpack the idea of his second coming. And the circumstances that will surround And what the world will be like just before and as he returns. There's a two-part thing going on here. But the Pharisees do this ridiculous thing and they ask, what will be the sign of the kingdom of God? What will be the evidence of the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, it will not be something, the second coming, that will be observable ahead of time, that you'll be able to see it coming slowly, gradually. But the Pharisee's question is really ironic It's ironic of them to ask, when will the kingdom of God come? It's like somebody sitting around a table on the fourth Thursday of November while the mashed potatoes and gravy are being passed, and the stuffing, and the cranberry sauce, and you can smell the aroma of the pumpkin pie, and somebody's carving the turkey, and somebody asking, when is Thanksgiving coming? (laughs) That's pretty dense. And that's the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. Here is the Son of God in their midst. The Son of Man. Jesus uses that phrase four times in this passage alone. He's right there in the midst. He's been performing miracle after miracle, casting out demons. In fact, some of them accused him of casting out demons by the power of the devil. The kingdom of God has been advancing right before their very eyes. The turkey's being carved. The stuffing is being passed. The mashed potatoes and gravy are being enjoyed. All of that's going on and they have the density to ask, when is the kingdom of God coming? That's dense. There's only so much that Jesus can do with these hypocrites, these Pharisees, these thickheads. And that's why he has to turn from addressing them to turning and addressing the disciples. But before we get there, look with me at Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. Jesus uses the phrase, son of man, four times to refer to himself in this passage alone. That phrase, that title, son of man, is Jesus' most preferred title in reference to himself. And where do we go to find out where that phrase is used but the Old Testament? In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, this is Daniel, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a, what? Son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given, this is the Son of Man, him, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. For Jesus to use the phrase, son of man, in reference to himself, was either audacious or accurate. Jesus was either out of his mind and using the Old Testament Scriptures in a blasphemous way, or he was right on the money as we know he was, and we know he is. To refer to himself as being the Son of Man, the people in that day would have been able to connect the dots. They would have been familiar with Daniel chapter 7. And they would have been able to understand that Jesus is saying that all authority and dominion and power is given to him. That he's going to rule and reign in a kingdom that will never end. And when we find the book of Revelation, when we read in Revelation, we see the same types of things being said about the Lamb who was slain. The only one who was worthy to take the scroll. The only one around whom the elders are on their faces before him worshiping, and the countless number of people, this sea of people, wearing white robes who have overcome around Jesus, the Son of Man, worshiping and honoring him. You better believe Jesus is connecting the dots so that even somebody who's dense like me can understand what Jesus is implying, what he's saying. But it does come down to knowing what the Bible teaches Taking seriously the words that are presented in the New Testament and finding their origin in the old testament, and that's what we see here. That's why Jesus is using repetition, 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 repetition. A good teacher uses repetition, 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 wants his listeners to understand, wants his listeners to get it, wants the teaching of the word of God to get deep down inside of them so that the word of God comes outside of them. And when the word of God is deep down inside of you, the Word of God comes out of you, and you become a world changer. You are God's plan A, I am God's plan A to get the Word of God into us, get the Word of God out of us, have the Word of God penetrate, saturate, permeate the whole world. In your family, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in the church, outside of the church, your plan A, there is no plan B. Jesus is helping them understand the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? He is the Son of Man. And Jesus makes it very clear if you read the whole Bible. All you have to do is just read Jesus' words about himself in regard to the Son of Man in Luke's Gospel. Just start with Luke's Gospel. And you will see that Jesus... It's not referring to somebody else who's the son of man. Not referring to somebody else after him who's coming as some of our Muslim acquaintances that we have throughout the world think that there's somebody coming after Jesus. No. You can't believe in some form of Jesus by neglecting the Bible and then conveniently change parts of the Bible to fit a new narrative. Jesus is the son of man. He is not only the Nazarene. He's much more than a Nazarene. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords coming back in victorious power. (laughs) All world history is now culminating and waiting, awaiting the return of the Son of Man. And some people are ready for it and others not. Some people are living daily in light of eternity, awaiting that day with an eagerness and a hunger and a passion and a prioritization. And others. Hmm. You know what's fascinating about this passage of Scripture? How Jesus affirms the Old Testament. He affirms the reality, the historical, factual reality of Noah and the ark, and the flood, and why those things happened in the first place. He affirms the historical accuracy and reality of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot, and Lot's wife, and why those events happened in the first place. Look with me at Genesis chapter six. The book of Genesis, the book of beginnings in chapter six. See, every time we see Jesus referencing the Old Testament, every time, not some of the time, not most of the time. We don't see him reinterpreting the Old Testament. We don't see him setting the record straight. Even some of these passages that supposedly educated people, maybe Pharisaic people, modern day Pharisees, look at and mock. See, if you mock the Old Testament accounts that Jesus affirms, really what you're doing is you're mocking Jesus. I know that it's mind-blowing and it's hard to comprehend the reality of some of these stories, but every time, not some of the time, not most of the time, every time Jesus references the Old Testament, he affirms it, every single time. You get the impression right out of the box that Jesus actually believes this stuff. (laughs) And if Jesus believes this stuff, then his followers are on good solid ground to believe it too. Let the world call you crazy. Let the world bring on their persecution. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's not possible to serve the Lord apart from being in the word of the Lord. But I like when people respond to the word of God, when you get excited about the word of God, but more than that, when you get excited about the God of his word. That's right. It's not far enough when we just get excited about the Bible, no. The Bible helps you get excited about the God of the Bible. And that's what you need in your life today in the dark days in which we live. You need to be excited about the God of his word. Because that God, he keeps his word. In Genesis chapter six, verse nine says this, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, Noah was not without sin, but as humanly possible as it was to walk with God, he did. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Make yourself an ark of go wood. make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. By the way, it's not a boat, it's an ark. There is a difference. It's a structure designed to simply float. It's not a cruise liner. It's not a cruise ship. It's not the ancient equivalent of Carnival or Royal Caribbean. It's an ark on purpose. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. You don't get the impression here from reading this that this is just a figurative account. You get the impression from even just a simple reading of it that it had dimensions. That it was to be built specifically according to the word of God. And why was God? Doing that, why did God tell Noah to build this ark? Because the world had become corrupt. And the world was about to be judged. And God, in His righteousness, in His mercy, in His goodness, was going to start over with somebody who was walking with Him. Sin had reached the pinnacle in that day. Where God, true to His nature, true to His holiness, true to His character, could not let sin go unpunished. That's why. The ark was built. That's why we have that biblical account. To remind us that God's standard is not the standard of people. God's standard is higher. We fall short of the glory of God. But yet God is true and righteous. He knows how to rescue those who walk with him. The biblical account in Genesis chapter 6 of the ark. Genesis chapter 7. That whole Genesis account. Jesus seems to imply very clearly it happened. It was true. Not figuratively, but historically. Same thing with Genesis chapter 19. Look with me at Genesis chapter 19. Just looking in part as we jump in midstream here to Genesis chapter 19, see what happened in ver- when we get to verse 23. What happened is Lot was being rescued with his family from a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. There's an event that happens, can not happen today. There's a certain activity that can happen today that's named after one of those towns And that town had become so wicked, so corrupt, so perverse. <laughs> Not just because they were violent, as some would try to suggest. Not just because they were violent toward one another and forcing each other and others to do things that they didn't want to do. It was the particular things that they wanted to do with each other. Whether it was violent or quote-unquote supposedly lovingly. It was an abomination before the Lord. And I would invite the leaders of the city of Houston to come up to Grace Fellowship. We will reserve you seats in the front row. And you can hear me preach about this from the Word of God. Unfortunately, I cannot give you a manuscript of the sermon ahead of time because I don't manuscript my sermons ahead of time. But you can listen to the podcast. We'll even burn it for you on CD and you can take it home with you. And I would invite anybody around this nation, we will reserve seats for you to come and to hear what the Word of God says, unadulterated, uncorrupted, in its pure form, consistently from Genesis to Revelation, about what the Bible teaches about man and woman, husband and wife, one man, one woman, one marriage, until death do you part. And by the way, let me say that I'm not a hater for saying that. You're the hater for telling me that I'm a hater. If you hate what I'm saying, then you take it up with the Lord. Because you've got to change major portions of the scripture. When the book of Leviticus says, do not lie with a man as a man lies with a woman. For that's an abomination before the Lord. It can't get much clearer than that. Now I'm sorry if I get impassioned about it. I love you if you don't agree with that. I'm not going to slander you in the media for having that view. Although I know that I put myself at risk for being slandered in the media for having that view. Because those who call us who have the biblical view of man and woman in marriage are not the haters. It is possible to be passionate about a subject like that and to love people who disagree with you. If you don't believe that, you have forgotten the cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the ultimate example of loving people when they hated you and spit on you. That's the example that while we were sinners, Christ died for us and it is totally possible for people who follow Jesus to love those who don't understand a biblical view of marriage, a biblical view of love. In Genesis 19, as we jump in just midstream, Lot was given the opportunity to go to this place called Little, called Zoar, to escape verse 23 of Genesis 19, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, total destruction, total judgment of God. And Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Hey Jesus, why don't you correct that story if it's erroneous? Hey Jesus, what are you doing undermining your own credibility, if that were possible? What are you doing undermining your own credibility by reading the Old Testament as if it's to be taken literally and seriously? Of course he was taking it literal. Of course he was taking it seriously. Of course he was taking it as a historical record, because he's ultimately the author. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. John chapter one, the Gospel of John chapter one. Jesus is the Word. Jesus inspired the writers of Scripture to record these events as they took place. So Jesus, amazingly, is giving authenticity and verifying the historical accuracy of these Old Testament accounts, that there really was a place called Sodom. There really was a place called Gomorrah. These people really sinned by perverting themselves and doing what should not be done, what's clearly taught in the Scriptures. They perverted themselves, and because of that, because they would not repent, because they would not turn back to God, because they would not do what Noah was doing, walking with God. God was given no other choice but to judge them. And Jesus actually specifically says, remember Lot's wife, who could not let go of her desire for the things of the world. Too earthly minded, no heavenly good. Jesus seems to take the whole account, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole enchilada. Jesus takes all of it, lays it out there and says, yes, I believe it. And you should too. That's what Jesus teaches. Look what he says here in regard to his coming of the kingdom of God. The first part, the Pharisees were missing when Jesus came. Look with me at Luke chapter 17, verse 22. He said to the disciples, notice it's the disciples. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. And then Jesus gives the reason. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the son of man in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, Jesus is talking about a two-part series of events. His suffering, the kingdom of God in their midst, right there, the suffering of Jesus. But for the disciples, the inside scoop on the glory of Jesus, that great and terrible great for those who are walking with God, terrible for those who are not, day in which he returns. The Son of Man will return. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Now, the original language does not put the and in there. See, our translation says they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. See, the idea that Jesus is trying to present here in the mundane, regular course of events in your life and mine, people are buying, selling, building, planting, marrying, being given in marriage. It comes across in the original language as this staccato series of events happening. Marrying, being given in marriage, planting, building, buying, selling. In the midst of all that, there's a divine interruption. Because the day of the Lord, when the Son of Man returns, when Jesus returns, it will be sudden. Like lightning that lights up the sky. Have you ever seen lightning come in a slow, gradual way that it begins with a spark over here? You have to slow it down. I don't know how much you have to slow it down in order to see that. The regular way that we witness lightning is that it lights up the whole sky. It can be in this part of the sky where it originates, but it lights up the whole sky instantaneously. And Jesus is saying, this is what he's saying, when I return, when the Son of Man returns, it will be sudden. It will be unmistakable. You won't have to wonder, is this the day? Is more coming? It will be sudden, it will be unmistakable, it will be inescapable, it will be global. No one will be able to escape when the Son of Man returns. As lightning lights up the sky, and it's visible in the east and the west, the whole sky, and as lightning is sudden, not gradual. That's the way it's going to be when Jesus Christ returns. And that will be a great day for those of us who are ready for his return, eager for his return, living for his return, but that will be a tragic and terrible day or night. You say, well, which is it going to be? Is the Lord going to come at night? See, you're showing your humanness because in some part of the world right now, it's nighttime. Jesus covers all the bases by saying, and that night and elsewhere, in that day. Look what he says. Verse 31, on that day, let no one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Hmm. Concerned with the cares of this world, maybe somebody who was a nester, just like The majority of women are nesters. You like your house, you like your home. Men, don't get, before you get on your high horse criticizing women, you like your tool shop. You like your power tools, your shed, your toys that you have, whether it's your truck, or your SUV, or the large screen television, or the new boots that you got that you can get muddy on your day out hunting. Your crossbow, your shotgun, whatever it might be. We've all got our tools. We've all got our pleasures of the world that we can look back at and enjoy. Lot's wife just happened to be the person who's an example there. Too enamored with the things of the world that were about to be destroyed, that were in the process of being destroyed as God was judging. See, God takes sin most seriously. He really does. The cross proves that. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And then Jesus gets again very passionate. I tell you. What might it have been like to be a disciple of Jesus and hear those words? I tell you. I tell you. I tell you. I tell you. It's Jesus' word to those who follow him. I tell you. In that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. Inescapable, sudden, unmistakable, tragic for those who are not ready. Wonderful for those who are Now we get all excited, we get all happy about this idea of Jesus affirming the story of Noah and the ark and the worldwide flood. We get all excited about Jesus affirming the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin therein and how it was destroyed with fire and sulfur we get all excited about Jesus, and as we should, affirming the story of Lot's wife, because Jesus is affirming something that's very dear to us as followers of Jesus Christ, the word of God. Jesus is affirming the word of God and helping us understand its value, its pricelessness. And this is why it's so important as a leader. If you're a pastor, maybe you're listening by podcast, if you're an elder, If you are a deacon, if you are a leader in the church, being in the Word of God regularly, consistently, and praying to the God of His Word regularly and consistently is absolutely paramount. I would go so far as to say every day, every day, not in a legalistic way, but in a, as if a man remains in me, he will bear much fruit kind of a way. Remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says in the Gospel of John. If you're a leader, you have to understand that you are only as good as his word. A leader is only as good as his word. Your word must be his word. His word must be your word. If you're a pastor, if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you are a Sunday school teacher, if you're serving in any capacity whatsoever in a leadership role, you must be in the word of God. You must have a plan and you must work that plan. I'm not being legalistic. I'm helping you understand that you've got to be ready. One of the primary ways that you are ready, that i I am ready is to be in the word of God and to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who is praying to the God of his word. Because you will only lead in proportion successfully to being in the word of God. You cannot lead the way God wants you to lead as an elder if you're out of the word of God and you're not praying daily, regularly. You cannot lead as a deacon in the church if you're out of the Word of God and not praying. You cannot lead as a pastor in the church, whether you're a lead senior pastor or whether you're an associate pastor or somewhere in between. You can't do it if you're out of the Word of God and you're not praying to the Lord. You've got to have a plan and you've got to work it. No scripture roulette where you open up the Bible wherever your finger lands. That's what you're going to read that day. A steady, consistent, daily, day by day, abiding in the Word of God where the Word of God gets into you and God's word comes out of you, and you're not only an overcomer on a personal level, but you are being used by the glory of God, by the finger of God, to be an agent of change in your family, in your neighborhood, at work, in this world. God is using you to transform one life at a time now. You might think, well, I'm not an elder, I'm not a deacon, I'm not a pastor, I don't want to be, don't aspire to be. In some capacity, if you've got a brainwave and a heartbeat, you have breath coming in and out of your nostrils, in some capacity, you're leading. Leadership is influence. Somebody somewhere is depending upon you. Somebody somewhere is listening to you. Somebody somewhere is watching you and seeing whether or not it's worthy to follow Jesus. We are all spreading the aroma of Christ or something else that we shouldn't be spreading. Every single one of Christ's followers is a leader in some capacity. You have children, you're a leader in your household. You're a child and you have parents who are older and you're responsible to take care of them. Loving your mother and your father, taking care of the adults in your family, that's a leadership position. You get in your car and you drive someplace. You're responsible for how you handle that car, aren't you? You're texting something putting something on social media. You are responsible for what you say and how you say it and how you come across. People are watching you. And in the course of watching your life, they're making a determination whether or not they're going to follow the Jesus that you say you're following so closely, so inseparably. As a disciple, as a disciple, as a disciple, you cannot divorce obeying God, walking with God, enjoying God, living with Him, being ready for the return of the Son of Man. You cannot divorce that from being in the Word of God steadily and daily. And your need to have divine insight in the dark day and age in which we live. You need insight. Where's that insight going to come from? It's going to come from the Word of God. Look at how Jesus depended upon the Word of God. You've got to depend upon the Word of God. That's right. You say, well, there's some times when I don't read the Bible every day. There's some times when I don't read the Bible every day. But you know what I have found? Maybe you have some difference in regard to what happens in your life. I have found when I don't read the Bible and when I don't pray in a particular day. It's not because I couldn't. It's not because somebody tied my hands and locked up my Bible. Sometimes we use that word couldn't and we shouldn't. The reality is we wouldn't. Your life and my life as a disciple of Jesus Christ should revolve around the living and true God to such a degree that we get into the Word of God that others are being persecuted for to this day. We might not be persecuted here in this country to the degree to which they're being persecuted elsewhere. Right now at this very moment, that day might be coming. But oh, what we're losing, what we're missing out on in terms of the intimacy with God, enjoying Him fully, having wisdom that only comes from a steady diet in His Word. You will never be a leader worth your salt if you're not in the Word of God and you're not praying and abiding with Jesus because salt, saltiness, influence in the world comes as a direct result of being in the Word of God, walking with God. That's how it works. That's how it works. Oh, for too long, we've taken the word of God lightly. Those of us in the evangelical church, we are paying a dear price for it now in our nation such a discrepancy between what we say we believe, what we want others to believe, and what we're practicing in our own lives. You know what we need? We need to repent. We need to repent for not taking the Word of God as seriously as we should, because it's not just the Word of God. It's not that we're about the Bible. It's about, we're about the God of the Bible. That's why we read the Word. That's why we pray. Amen? That's why it's important. We don't worship the Bible, we worship the God of the Bible, but our worship of the God of the Bible is limited when we don't know the Word of God. That's why it's important to have a steady diet from the Word of God every day. Make a commitment for 30 days. 30 days of Bible and prayer. And recommit that every 30 days. Forget about the next number of years you might be alive. Just focus on the next 30 days. Open up the Word of God. Read it. Pray. Pray it back to the Lord. Go for a walk. You don't have to stay on your knees. You don't have to stay in your bedroom or the living room or the dining room. Find a place where you can every single day, every single day, Every single day, get into the Word of God. Pray to the Lord, the God of His Word. Put the Word of God into action. Stop getting so excited about, oh, I wish other people would understand how Jesus affirms the Word of God. Instead of that, how about you and me affirming the Word of God by living every day? The way Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this book is from the very mouth of God. Every day make a commitment. And you'll find that that couldn't becomes it wouldn't. i Am not trying to convict you and make you feel bad about the times that you miss? I'm saying make a commitment to the Lord to get his word into you. Make a priority. Find whatever you can, that, uh, that priority. Make a priority for whatever you can. Go to bed earlier. Get up earlier. Make a commitment for 30 days to get to know God by being in his word. I have found that the times I say I couldn't, weren't because I couldn't, it's because I wouldn't. Something else was competing with pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. And I bet you find the same thing true too. There are always things competing with my time for Jesus. Always things competing with my surrender to Jesus. Always things that masquerade as being more important than intimacy with God. Nothing is more important than our intimacy with God. Nothing is more important than your intimacy with God. Nothing is more vital than the the fact that you walk with God. Why? Because two will be in the field, one will be taken. Two will be in bed in an intimate relationship with each other. Marriage is implied there. Two will be in bed. One will be taken. The other one won't be taken. Jesus telling them, I tell you, this is how it's going to be. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be global. It's going to be unmistakable. And you better be ready because many people will not be ready. But the disciple, the follower, is ready. Always ready for the return of Jesus. Always ready for the return of the Son of Man that will be visible. Noticeable, unmistakable, inescapable, tragic for those who are not ready. The Scriptures abound with example after example after example. Reaffirm and confirm the same thing that Jesus is saying. Look with me at Second Peter chapter 3. Verse 1 says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep and all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The idea of affirming the flood by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, The coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The return of Jesus will be sudden. It will be unmistakable. It will be unavoidable. It will be terrible for those who are not walking with God, wonderful for those who are. We have Jesus' word on it. We have the clear teachings of Scripture upon it again and again and again and again. And Jesus' word to the disciples then is Jesus' word to the disciples now. Get ready, because I'm coming back.
0: You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.